We'd like to begin this episode by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land that we record our interviews on. Dermot and I are on Gadigal, Gundungurra and Tharawal country. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We recognise their continuing connection to the land and waters and thank them for protecting our coastline and ecosystems. We also extend that respect to all First Nations people listening to this episode. Welcome to the second episode in the Goodwill Hunters Spring Series, which asks, can Australia be a sustainability superpower? This series is proudly presented in partnership with WWF Australia. I'm your host, Dermot O'Gorman, CEO of WWF Australia, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. In our second episode of the season, you'll hear from two pioneers who are revolutionising our food systems. The first is Bruce Pascoe, best known as the author of Dark Emu and founder of Black Duck Foods, an Indigenous social enterprise committed to re-establishing traditional food growing processes. The other is Joost Baker, best known for his zero waste projects, including Silo Restaurant and now the Future Food System in Melbourne, Australia. In this episode, we will look at how we can transform our food systems and make our resources more sustainable now and for future generations. There's an old saying, you are what you eat, but Bruce and Joost take this to a new level of thinking about our relationship with food, our personal well-being, and the health of the planet. Enjoy the episode and join the conversation via at Goodwill Pod and hashtag Regenerate Australia. As world leaders prepare to gather in Glasgow for the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has sent out a dire warning. We've caused permanent damage to the Earth's climate. Without significant changes, the average global temperature is very likely to rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by 2040. The experts are clear. World leaders must commit to an ambitious reform agenda to stop adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. But what do those changes look like? What does all this mean for the most vulnerable communities? And what is Australia's role in climate leadership? My name is Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder and executive producer of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you by the Worldwide Fund for Nature, Australia's most trusted conservation organisation. Through its Regenerate Australia campaign, WWF is calling on Australian leaders to make Australia the world's leading exporter of renewable energy by 2030. Thank you for joining us for this crucial conversation. We invite you to contribute to the conversation online at Goodwill Pod and WWF Australia and hashtag Regenerate Australia. Thanks both for joining us on the show. This episode's focused on food. And as we know, food is one of the areas of climate action where some argue that individual action can make a huge difference to climate change. And others argue that without drastic changes to the food system, individual action doesn't matter at all. We do know that 58% of the world's carbon emissions are created by our current food system, like 58%. Can individual choices around food, what we eat and how we eat, have an impact on climate change and sustainability. Newst, I'll start with you. 
Uh, absolutely. I, I think um, it's a no-brainer. Uh, there's so many different things that we can do, different foods that we can eat. We can uh, produce so much food where we live. And I actually think that the figures don't take into account. So food waste is, a, is apparently a third of um, the food that actually leaves the farm, but we don't actually take into account the amount of food that doesn't leave the farm. So just behind me is uh, my neighbor who grows capsicums and at least a third of the capsicums that he grows aren't actually good enough. They ended up just going for feed or getting buried in the ground. Um, so I'm, I'm surrounded here by food producers and I can tell you that food waste is actually a lot higher than what we think it is. And I think it's just because the system is broken and we just need to go back in and uh, uh, it's, it's only a very new system that has allowed this to happen. And I think it's a disconnect from food and it's a disconnection from uh, the food system that has allowed this to happen. People that grow their own food or, or have their own gardens waste a lot less because they understand the energy and effort that goes into it. And um, I think that, that we need to reconnect. We need to go back to being in our food system. And I think that we're in a really exciting time because the technology today allows us to do that. Very true. Bruce, did you want to add anything to that? Well, I just think we need to change our attitude to food and uh, stop being told what to do uh, by the price setters. It's been said we've uh, failed to appreciate the sort of sophisticated food systems that existed in Australia pre to, you know, before the, the pre-colonial era. Um, in what ways do you are food systems tied up in cultural bias and all prejudice um, as well? Look, it's a really uh, complicated question and a complicated answer. Um, the great distinction between Aboriginal food production and uh, the current industrial food production in Australia is in the relationship with the earth. Aboriginal people believe that the earth is our mother. Uh, she has her own story. In fact, it is the biggest story. And uh, that then makes everything we do uh, reference her health, her welfare, uh, what she needs. And instead of the other way around, where the industrial food machine uh, says, we want you to do this, you must do this, and if you can't do it because you're Australia and you haven't got enough water and you haven't got enough uh, nutrients in the soil, we will add nutrients to you and we will steal water from the environment to feed you because you're hopeless. Um, and then we completely distort the relationship between people and the earth. And we have to respect this country. Um, and it's not about being... Uh, airy fairy, and you know, uh, we're not druids. Um, um, we we have had this relationship with the earth for 120,000 years. You know, based on uh, simply the research um, of Jim Bowler. Now, some people don't accept Jim's research, so let's go to 65,000 years and the the cave at, at Jinmium. Um, and where it was found that there's a, a grinding dish found there that we know was used to grind grain 65,000 years ago. This is 
easily the longest use of grain in the world and Aboriginal people were able to do it without private ownership and that's a critical factor in, in terms of how um, farming is conducted and it was uh, conducted uh, over millennia with no added fertiliser uh, other than uh, developing a tilth in the soil and only using the water that the earth could provide. Um, and in some cases there was supplementary water added. But in general terms, these are Australian adapted plants which are adapted to our soils, adapted to our, our water system and climate. And they're perennial. In most cases, they're perennial. And so, therefore, they sequester carbon. Because their roots are deep in the soil, and some of the plants in Western Australia, for instance, have their food uh, stored a metre and a half below the surface in order to protect them from the worst elements of the climate. And all of these things meant that Aboriginal people could do this for 65,000 years, absolute minimum. There's not that there wasn't change in that uh, period of time. It's not that there wasn't um, innovation, but there, by general agreement amongst the people, the primary uh, thing to consider was the health of Mother Earth. In our world today, we are doing everything to abuse that trust. Uh, with Mother Earth. So this is a fundamental difference. Now, on the farm here at Black Duck Foods, we're trying to replicate that system, you know, for environmental reasons, for cultural reasons, but also for political reasons. We don't want a judge telling us at some stage, like a judge told the Yorta Yorta people, that your culture has been washed away by the tide of history. We are involved in this to defy the idea that we've lost our culture, we've lost our access and our interest in Mother Earth. But what we're doing is we're growing these perennial grains, perennial tubers, so that we can show farmers that we can sequester carbon, we can show government that we can lead them well and truly beyond our uh, uh, carbon emission reduction targets easily. Uh, by a, a more sympathetic agriculture. But we are harvesting a salad vegetable on uh, a saline swamp down below, beyond my house, um, and we don't do a damn thing to it apart from sequential harvesting. We don't touch its root system. It grows in salt water. Um, it'll grow on next to fresh water as well. And I'm... You know, we're, we're encouraging people to look at this as a viable agricultural product, even though you don't need to do anything to it other than pick it. And, you know, this is a complete mind shift. You know, we think in terms of agriculture in doing, uh, in harvesting plants that we sow, that we crop. What about Mother Earth? She's already given us food and this plant is is a divine salad vegetable, but it's also 
about seven times as nutritious as um, an iceberg lettuce. So th these things need to be considered by Australia and we need to resist the knee-jerk reaction of those who are in support of, um, you know, industrial agriculture. That story is actually what has inspired my current project at Federation Square. I'm, uh, I read a lot of books that were written 100 plus or more years ago, and especially by explorers and big fan of National Geographic. I explored new territorial geographical societies, it was called back then. And um, I'm really inspired by the work of uh, Dr. Weston A. Price, who was uh, one of the founders of the American Dental Association. My Canadian friends always say, make sure you mention he's Canadian, not American. So he was a Canadian dentist, a highly regarded dentist. And in the 1910s, there was a lot of um, anxiety about the narrowing of faces, the narrowing of jaws in America and in Europe. And um, at the same time, the Geographical Society were coming back with images of the Hudson, uh, Australian Aboriginals, uh, the, people, the populations in the Pacific Islands and um, wide jaws, wide um, teeth. And of course, these were just images. So Western Price convinced the American Dental Association to fund a trip where they would go to places and actually research the food, bring some of the food back and analyze it for nutrient density. The first trip was in 1924 and uh, they went, they started with a village that was in uh, Switzerland and uh, the village was only accessible by um, four days walking. So the only thing that this village traded was salt. Everything else was, um, there were about 4,000 people living in this valley and had been living so for thousands of years. And um, they went to some islands off Scotland and uh, Alaska and a few other places but the, the, the knowledge that they gained from that trip was so valuable that they decided to do this again and again. And I think they did it 10 years in a row. And at the end, he wrote a book, uh, Physical Degeneration, um, about this work. It was a summary. I mean, there was, uh, there's over 150,000 documents or pages of information from that trip. He had over 50 researchers and doctors and scientists working back in America, analyzing everything that was brought back. But in summary, he wrote that the Australian Aboriginals, he, he uh, spent time with the population in Australia. He believed that they had the best diet on earth. Out of uh, a group of over 300 people, he couldn't find one tooth cavity. And he, you've got to understand that at the time in America, one in two teeth were effect, affected with tooth decay. And so they were the only population on earth that he discovered that were totally immune to tooth decay. And analyzing their food and obviously their food was complex and they ate over 400 different types of foods and seasonally, but the nutrient density was through the roof. So they had 17 times more calcium in their diet and um, uh, 16 times more zinc and lots of trace elements and, and other critical things. And so based on that work, Western Price proved back in America that he could um, totally seal tooth cavities in children in six weeks by simply changing their diet. But my interest in that body of work is that it's the nutrient density, the complexity. We are now, we've mined all of the agricultural soils of the world of all its minerals. We've hidden this epidemic by layering synthetic fertilizers because 
the way the world works today, it's about kilos. It's about yield. We're not actually looking at what, um, the complex nutrients, the, the, the vitamins, the nutrient density of the food. It's just about the tonnage. And I think that um, proof is in our health and well-being. Reproduct- we, we, uh, since the 1973, when we started collecting data, we are, we've lost 43% of our fertility rate, or it's dropped by 43% in the Western world. I think it's pretty simple. Western Price worked it out already 100 years ago. Nutrient density is key and complexity is key. And it's, I think we've got a lot to learn. And so in the project at Fed Square, we've got a, um, it's very modern. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a building. It's a 87 square meter building. It's about a quarter of the footprint of the average Australian home. It harnesses rainwater and we, we put rainwater through a water activator. So the water is negatively charged like it would be if it came out of a stream. We um, grow things like yabbies. Yabbies have probably been consumed in that location for who knows how many thousands of years. Yam daisy we're eating at the moment. We've got, you know, so many different ingredients and, and um, elements that were consumed, you know, native shellfish and, and um, Murray cod and um, lots of different plants and herbs. And to me, the answer was crystal clear a hundred years ago. We've got to go back to, to um, appreciating diversity, understanding that we need to live in a closed loop cycle. We generate the nutrients. We don't need to have nutrient poor food. We each and every one of us generates more than enough nutrients to put back into our own food system and repeat the cycle. And to me, that concept is so much more exciting than the lives that we live today. And I think an undercurrent of what you've both been talking about is the need to minimise, if not eliminate, waste and that there isn't a need for waste in our food systems. Um, and Eust, I wanted to pose a question to you on that. I went to your restaurant, Silo, in Melbourne many years ago um, and you've had great initiatives since then with Future Food System, really focused on the idea that we need to minimise or eliminate food waste and yet it seems that a lot of the conversation is focused on whether food is organic or plant-based as opposed to how much we're producing um, and what's happening to it where do you sit on that spectrum is there a place for us to be talking about organic plant-based food or should we just be focused on how much we're producing and how much we're wasting look i know of organic farmers that farm in a way that the food i would not eat you know, it's an industrial process that is not really that different to the fact that they don't use synthetic fertilizer and, and um, um, pesticides and fungicides is really relevant. The system is still the same, you know. Um, but I was quite, quite um, actually, the time when I met Bruce, I was going through a low period that was probably about 10 years ago, years ago because I really believed that the idea of zero waste was something that was so obvious and made so much sense. It was this common sense, like nature is zero waste. So we've got this great example. And so zero waste is, is in, in my opinion, about everything. It's about how you live. It's about the, the way you live. And the, for us to grow nutrient-dense food, the, we need to solve that waste issue. Because our waste, like 70% of the waste that leaves our body is in urine. It's a completely, and it's an, it's an incredibly uh, complex group of nutrients that exist in urine. It's safe. It's sterile. 
And Sweden has decided, they decided already in 2008 that by 2030, they'll be totally self-sufficient in, in fertilizer by harvesting urine. And so new houses that are built are built with urine tanks. Plants love and accept this. Whereas if you're using synthetic fertilizer, a plant only takes up between 10 and 20% at best. So you've got 80% that either ends up in the atmosphere or ends up in our oceans, causing ocean acidification. And then farmers often apply this two or three times per year. So you've got this constant bombardment and leaching of these synthetic fertilizers. And, you know, it's just the insanity is crazy. I'd like to comment on that uh, zero waste as well. Uh, we'd like to uh, carry that through into our forest. We're trying to change the nature of our forest. Um, uh, during the fires and just before, it was obvious to us that this district, Malakuta, was going to get hammered uh, by the fire and it was generated by the forest industry. People blame national parks and I think there is a certain amount of mismanagement with national parks and a, um, a slightly warped philosophy. Um, but it's not, um, it's not deliberate and it's not mean. And, you know, we used uh, to mention politicians before. If we rely on politicians, um, we're going to be disappointed. But we can provide politicians with information. And we, the people, um, can direct politicians. If we wait to be directed by politicians, we are bound to be disappointed and bound to be um, caught up in a system uh, that is adversarial. We, we need to have conversations that are not adversarial, and which means that we have to listen too. But, and we have to listen at the moment to foresters who have been brought up with conventional forest use. But we're trying to bring our forest on the farm here back to the old Aboriginal forest, which as a rule of thumb was 10 or 12 trees to the acre, not 350, and in some cases 500. Little tiny saplings like matchsticks that act in exactly the same way as a matchstick because their crowns touch, they explode. And some of those um, industrial forests to the north of here, they disappeared. There weren't uh, dead sticks standing up. There was nothing. There was snow on the ground in January. It looked like Switzerland because the ash was so white, so hot had that fire got, got that it reduced it to white ash, not grey. You can tell the temperature of fire by the colour of the ash. It was horrific. It's really, it's really interesting because in uh, the future food system at Fed Square, we didn't use any, not one stick of FSC timber. So forest, I was determined to not use any FSC timber. So that means that I couldn't use plywood. I couldn't use, I basically couldn't go to Bunnings and get timber. So we harvested a tree off a farm in uh, Ballarat and uh, a pine tree that was cut down on a golf course. And we milled this timber, put in a, a solar powered kiln. And um, a lot of advice from uh, Rowan Reed has gone into the, the building and, and helped, I suppose, inform it. And it's amazing when we get architects through because they don't actually realize the damage that forestry and plantation timber is doing, not only in Australia, but globally. And I see that Australian farmers hold the key. We've got an unbelievable uh, opportunity for Australian farmers to plant out trees 
for shelter belts, for shade, for livestock, for biodiversity, the, the potential for Australian farmers to be incredible suppliers of future timber is, is something that we haven't even really thought about. And that's when the bushfires were happening in the Amazon just recently, it reminded me about 20 years ago, we went deep into, an, into the Amazon with a botanist from the, uh, the Peruvian side. And we introduced ourselves and, uh, uh, you know, I said my name and he thought I was Dutch. I said, no, I'm, I'm from Australia. And he said, I like Australians, but I don't like Australian, uh, I, I don't like Australian plants. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, your trees will destroy the Amazon. And we questioned him on it. And he said, we're, we're um, clear felling the Amazon. And uh, we're, we're grazing on that land. We're growing one or two crops. And then the crops, the land is only good for grazing. And then the only thing that will grow after this period are gum trees. And so through the wet season, we get these lightning strikes every afternoon. And the lightning hits the eucalypts, causes fires. We never get fires in the Amazon. And I was watching those fires go through the Amazon two years ago now. And I just thought, wow, he was so right, you know, that. Um, we, we, this, it's, it's, it's the, not following the rule of the biodiversity of, um, you know, mon monocropping is a disaster, no matter which way you look at it and planting something on mass, whether it's a tree or whether it's a grain doesn't work. The desertification that is happening, you know, once these, these biodiversities are gone, then they're turning into deserts. Desertification is the biggest issue globally that we face. So here we have an opportunity for our farmers to be incredible um, re-wilders, re-planters, creating wildlife corridors and, and uh, protection for livestock and ultimately also be providing us 20 years is nothing. 25 years will be here before we know it. And we just need to help farmers do this. So both Joost and Bruce, um, you, you talk a lot about this as opportunity, the opportunity to fix that broken relationship with Mother Earth, as you said, Bruce, and and the crazy system. Um, on the 23rd of September this year in New York, um, the UN's holding a the first food system summit. This summit intends to amplify the needs for transforming global food systems um, and achieving, achieving the SDGs. Um, the context is by 2050, the population will exceed 9 billion and it's projected we need to double, the uh, demand for food will double. So one of the key goals of, of that summit is to put food on the global political agenda. Um, however, I think it's interesting that 300 grassroots organisations representing small scale food producers, researchers and indigenous uh, people are boycotting the summit and putting on their own meeting, uh, saying the summit is disproportionately influenced by corporates and lacks transparency and accountability. Given what you've talked about, what are your views on, on that boycott? Um, do small producers and large corporations need to work together to fix that system um, or is there a different model? We've got a system now which is imperfect. Most people will agree uh, that a, a system where if a product, say, like wheat can't be sold, then the wheat is thrown away, um, you know, most people will agree that is a flaw 
in the system. So rather than changing systems, why don't we improve the one we've got? And I, you know, I'm, I think there's a lot to be done um, in the world of food and environment, which are opportunities for entrepreneurs, if you like. You know, if we can't have the state organising it, then let entrepreneurs organise it, but let them do it under our instruction, like our instruction for the forest. You use our forests, you behave by our rules. You dig up our iron ore um, rent-free, well, actually, we're going to ask you to live by our rules and return something to the common wealth. Uh, and I would like that conference to think about population. But if they, if they don't, then talk um, to the people, you know, the, the big corporates are in there um, with all their power. But if they're not going to listen, speak to their children because a percentage of those children are far more environmentally savvy than their mum and dad and grandma and grandpa. So I think, you know, I'm, there's so many things that we can do positively in conversation, but that conversation has to be polite and that resistance has to be polite because if, if we just build trenches like we've, we're doing politically in Australia at the moment and in the States, if you wear a mask, you're a Democrat, if you don't wear a mask, you're a Republican. It's ridiculous and it's bloody dangerous because it can only lead to civil war. Well, I mean, look, I, I don't, I probably differ a little bit there with Bruce because I don't think that there's an issue with food production. I don't think that, that um, um, you know, obviously I, I actually don't think that the population is going to grow much more than what it is just because, or you need to look at this, the fertility rate and the, the difficulty people all over the world are having just to have a baby, you know, and that's something that's very different to what existed 40 years ago. So I think that there's, uh, and I'm not the only one that says this, I think that there's a lot of people that are saying that our um, population will decline very quickly. But even without that saying that, I just think that there is um, so much opportunity to grow so much more food. Um, yeah, we just... I don't see that as being an issue at all. I just think it's about using our brains, using our minds and using idea, new ideas um, to create new food systems. I don't necessarily believe that we uh, need more land. I think we can use a lot less land to grow a lot more food. And, um, and I think we need to focus on nutrient density, complexity, um, diversity and uh, urban food and, you know, we, there's more than enough water that exists in a city like Melbourne to have, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of aquaponic systems producing amazing fish and those fish could be producing amazing nutrients for um, peas, beans, uh, lettuces, greens, yam daisies, whatever it is. You know, there's, I just think that we haven't explored that idea anywhere near enough. Urban food, I'm a big believer, will ultimately be the main source of food. and that will bring much needed pressure relief on land and allow us to rewild a lot of the damaged soils that have that exist all over the world. Um, after the bushfires, we got grass growing in our forest, which is the same grass as we're trying to grow. It grew of its own free will in the forest. These are very edible grains, and it just showed us that we 
Um, the forests that we grow commercially are the wrong forests for this continent. And we can have our forest and have our food at the same time. One of our paddocks on the hill uh, to my west is um, uh, has we harvest three grains of it, uh, four tubers and a lily um, and, and an orchid. You know, it's very complex and we, we have to make sure we keep machinery off it so that we can harvest those, those food products. So the more complicated, the better in many ways and keeping fungi in the soil is really important as well. So the question I just wanted to pose there to, to you both, Bruce, you said the more complicated, the better. And I guess something that strikes me when we're talking about sustainability and food systems is sometimes it feels it's a very sophisticated and sometimes quite resource intensive transition to go to more sustainable means of food production, which is okay in our context where we have the resources, we have the knowledge to apply to it, but most of my working career has been spent in the Pacific and in parts of Southeast Asia where I'm not sure that those same level of resources exist to make some of these transitions to more sustainable food systems. And at the same time, a child's dying every five seconds of malnutrition. We have a chronic issue with malnutrition globally. How do we fix that quickly while still making some of the quite sophisticated transitions, quite complicated transitions that you're both talking about? Well, it's, it's subsidies. If we can get rid of subsidies, it's the European Union subsidies, Japanese subsidies that are distorting this madness of sending soybeans that are grown in Argentina to the Netherlands to feed to cows and then the milk that the, those cows produced being turned into milk powder and then a, a 45 euro cent subsidy goes on that milk powder per kilo and that then gets sent to Africa, which means that the African um, villager that had one cow and was able to make a living off that one cow and trade off that one cow suddenly can't make a living anymore. The damage that that subsidies are causing, particularly in the third world, is something that just doesn't get discussed and it drives me absolutely crazy. The amount of subsidies that Japanese farmers get um, in China, Australia actually doesn't get a lot of subsidy in comparison, but the damage that um, the, the, the European car, uh, cars are doing to the Borneo, the forest in Borneo, 10% of the fuel that's going into European cars has to be by law derived from plants. A, a hectare of palm oil will yield up to 20,000 litres. A hectare of corn will be lucky to yield 3,500 litres. It's not the corn, it's got a fancy corn cob on the Bowser, but it's coming from Borneo. That's the reason why the forest is getting cleared. So I think, and we also assume that, that, that the poorer countries and these countries don't have complex systems, but they do have amazing, a lot of my knowledge about aquaponic systems comes from Africa. Um, how, did, how they make fish food, how do they, it is quite complex. And I think that the Western world's um, manipulation of agricultural systems is actually a big cause of, of them being able to live sustainably. The fact that we have a UN summit in uh, September on the global food systems, um, the stats that we waste 3 billion tonnes of food a year, um, and your com both of your comments about uh, a crazy system and our broken relationship with nature show that we've got a problem with how we produce and consume and waste food. If you could fix just one thing 
of that system, what would it be? I think we should develop a better relationship with the earth. We should ask ourselves about everything we do. Is this good for Mother Earth? Is this going to mean that there's going to be a a world uh, of beauty and food for my great-grandchildren? And if, if we do that, I think it changes our attitude to food as well. And I, I think it will improve our relationship with the earth. And it, it's, a, it's a way of looking at the world that is full of economic opportunity. This is not anti-business. It's pro-business, but just different business. So I would ask people to take responsibility for how they treat the earth in every way. And you, Yost? I think we've spent um, a few million years immersed in nature and we've spent the last hundred years doing everything we possibly can to remove ourselves from it. And I think it's become clear that this has been a mistake both from a mental health point of view but also from a health point of view. Immersing yourself in nature, whether it's through biophilia, by introducing plants, growing something, even if it's a pot of parsley, will connect you to you'll start thinking about the weather, you'll start thinking, is it going to rain? Is, um, do I need to water this plant? Is it going to seed? And that will start you on a journey um, that there's no going back. Once you've started on that, there's no going back. And one of my favorite things to do is um, the Stephanie Alexander Kitchen Garden at the schools, spend time with them and you can see that it's a primal connection. Kids love planting stuff, growing stuff, harvesting stuff and eating it. It's primal. It's something that's in all of us. And I can't see why the modern world can't exist with that as being central to the way we live. Great answers. Thank you both so much for your time. This has been so insightful and we really appreciate having you both on the program. That was episode two of the Goodwill Hunters Spring Series in partnership with WWF Australia. Join us next week for a conversation on how we can transform our cities to be more sustainable, resilient and fit for the future. And remember, you can join the conversation on this episode via at GoodwillPod and hashtag Regenerate Australia. See you next week.